If you haven't read the, read the book of Exodus, get ready for a riveting story, a riveting drama of God bringing his people out of slavery and giving them new life. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 1. You can join me as I read along. Words should be up on the screen as well. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Becky Pippert, author of Hope Has Its Reasons, tells a story of attending two events on the same day. Uh, the first event that she attended was a post-grad psychology class at Harvard University. And the second event she attended was a Christian Bible study that was just off campus. And she observes how these two different groups of people addressed their problems and their sin. And it was quite a contrast. She says she went to this psychology class and the people talked openly about their problems. They said things like, I'm angry, I'm jealous, right? I'm in pain. She said, but as they talked very transparently about their problems, when it came to talking about resources that could help them overcome it, they didn't have any answers. Then she went to this Christian Bible study and she said, it was a, it was a stark contrast. 
they had all of God's answers. And they had all of God's promises. But they had no problems. They didn't share their problems. In fact, she said the closest thing to a confession of some sort of sin or problem in this Bible study was, you need to pray for so-and-so who's struggling. Two different events. In this psychology class, they had all the problems and no answers. In the Christian Bible study, they had all the answers and no problems. Let me, let me reframe that. In the psychology class, they had all the struggles, but no hope. In the Christian Bible study, they had all the hope, but no struggles. The book of Exodus is full of struggle and hope because that's what life is full of, struggle and hope. The question is, why is life such a struggle? And what is your hope in the midst of the struggle? So we begin with the why of life being such a struggle. What's the source of the struggle of life that everyone is accustomed to? Everyone struggles. Why? Well, the first word in verse 1 of Exodus 1, in the original language of the Old Testament, which is Hebrew, the first word is and. In other words, this is not a new story that we're reading. This is the continuation of the story that unfolds in the book of Genesis. This is the story of this 70-person family that arrives in Egypt and begins to grow. Now, who is this family? Well, Jacob is the father. Jacob's father was Isaac. Isaac's father was Abraham. So Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, was the man to whom God gave this amazing promise that he was going to have this huge family. This huge family. So this 70-person family that starts in Egypt and now has grown mightily is the family of God. It's the family that God promised Abraham. Now you would, at that point, you'd say, wow, this must be a really polished, cleaned up family, right? This is the family of God. But you'd be mistaken. This is the family that has tremendous dysfunction. This is a family that is full of dysfunction. This is a family that probably would be a candidate or would have been a candidate, doesn't show any longer, or they don't have new episodes any longer, for the Jerry Springer show. Now, some of you are chuckling because you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are not. Simply put, it's off air now or it doesn't have new episodes. It was a talk show full of drama, full of fighting, full of betrayal. Very much like this family that shows up in Egypt, the family of God. Absolutely dysfunctional. Jacob, the father, the patriarch of this family, uh, betrayed his brother Esau to steal away his birthright. And then you have like father, like sons. Right? So the youngest son in this family, Joseph, was, uh, he was daddy's boy. He was the one that got doted on. 
His father Jacob favored him. And so his older brothers hated it. They were jealous. They hated the younger. They were so infuriated that they took their younger brother, they beat him up, they threw him in a hole, and they sold him to slavery in Egypt. And then Joseph in Egypt rises up to power and ends up saving his family in a famine, and that's why they're back together now in Egypt. One of the characters in this family, one of the sons, Judah, brought incredible sexual scandal to this family because he committed sexual immorality with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. This is a family that has a sordid past. This is a family that is dysfunctional, that's marked by sin, that's marked by brokenness. And where does this dysfunction come from? Well, it came from their great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve, who plunged the human race into sin, into brokenness, and it has been passed down from generation to generation all the way to your family of origin. Every family is dysfunctional to varying degrees. There is not a perfect family. And you may look around and see families that look very polished up and very squeaky clean, and I would tell you that you're wrong. We do a great job of putting lipstick on a pig when it comes to our sin and brokenness. We are incredibly dysfunctional. So why is life such a struggle? Number one, because you inherit dysfunction. You inherit sin, you inherit brokenness, and then you act upon it, right? Then you yourself act dysfunctionally and you act upon your sin. But second, it's not just the struggle of life is not just born out of your sin and how you commit sin, but it's born out of sin that's committed against you. Sin that's committed against you. And that's where we find uh, in verses eight to 14, right? Joseph had died. It describes, and in verses 8 to 14, a new king arises in Egypt. So Joseph died, his brothers die, and understand that God's family was protected because Joseph was in power, right? Joseph was honored and respected, and so his family was honored and respected. As soon as Joseph was gone and this new king moves to town, he didn't know Joseph, or he at least, maybe he knew he was, didn't care about him, and he became fearful. And we read in verse 10, if war breaks out, This new king says, if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land, right? So he's afraid of rebellion. This king is afraid that these Israelites who have grown to be a mighty number in Egypt are gonna rebel against him. So what he does is he tries to suppress them. He tries to oppress them. He tries to get rid of them. And his first tactic is slavery. He he ruthlessly enslaves them. And then we'll see later in the chapter, he moves to genocide. He moves to genocide, to killing the Hebrew babies. We learn two very important truths about the oppressive nature of sin and evil in this passage, in these verses. The first is this. This is not ultimately a battle between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Nor is this ultimately a battle between the Israelites and this evil Pharaoh. This is not a political battle. 
This is a cosmic battle between God and the anti-God figure of Pharaoh, which ultimately lands it to a place of battle between God and between Satan. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that? Well, look at verse, look at verse seven. It says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied. This is the exact language that comes out of Genesis chapter one. When God tells our first parents, be fruitful and multiply. That's who God is. God is a God of life, of life flourishing, of life multiplying. Now look at verse 10. What does this new king of Egypt, this new Pharaoh say? Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. This new king is directly opposing God and his plan. God says, multiply. This new king says, stop the multiplication. God says, multiply life. This new king says, I'm going to steal life. This flows right out of Genesis 3.15 that says the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, meaning the Messiah. Pharaoh, or this new king of Egypt, is the seed of the serpent who when he gets to genocide and killing the Hebrew babies is attempting to prevent the birth of the Savior, which we'll get to in chapter two, ultimately Jesus preventing the birth of the Savior or preventing the Savior from growing up into a man. Pharaoh is an anti-Christ figure. This is a battle between God and evil, between God and the forces of evil. And what I want you to hear is that all of your problems, your, your sin, your addiction, your brokenness, your dysfunction, all of it on a, on a grand scale is this battle between God's plan and the forces of evil that want to oppress and the forces of evil that want to destroy and ultimately bring death. Now, why is this so important to understand? Because if you don't understand the real nature of the battle, then you're gonna turn to insufficient resources in the midst of the battle. Take, take addiction, for example. Right? We could run this through every form of sin and brokenness, but take addiction, for example. If, if, if addiction doesn't fall in the context of this greater battle, then you're gonna turn to insufficient resources. Meaning, if addiction is just chemical, chemistry, a product of chemistry or biology or genetics, then you're going to turn to a certain treatment program. In fact, listen to this one treatment hospital. Listen to their bold claim about being able to treat addiction. This is what they claim. Give us 10 days, we'll give you your life back. And that claim comes out of their definition of addiction, which is this, a compulsive physiological need for a habit-forming substance, a neurological disease, not a mental or moral problem or even a spiritual problem. There's a battle that's waging, that's bigger, that's grander than you can see. The forces of evil are attempting to suppress and oppress you. And when you recognize this, then you turn to the right story. If you don't recognize this, here's what tends to happen. You're at the center of the story, right? The Israelites are not the center of the story here in Exodus. God is at the center of the story. This is his story. 
And that means that, that we don't try to write God into our story. We rewrite our story into God's story. That's how you make sense of life. When you rewrite the story of your life into his story. So, so sin and struggle takes place in the context of this greater battle. But the second truth I want you to see here about the oppressive nature of sin and evil is this, that the goal of evil, the goal of sin is death. That's the goal. That's what it sets out to do, right? Uh, God is a life giver. Satan is a life stealer. The scriptures does, describe Satan as a murderer from the beginning. Or last week in 1 Peter 5, as a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. We read it in this chapter, verse 11. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 14, they made their lives bitter. Right? The world, the system of the world, your flesh or your sin and the devil are all working to oppress all working to steal life from you. But that's not fronted in the advertisement. That's not fronted in the advertisement. The little girl who gets lured into the sex trafficking industry is not told when she gets brought in that she's gonna lose her dignity, that she's gonna be treated like an inhumane object, that her life is gonna be ruined. No, she is told by the trafficker you're going to be cared for in her vulnerable state. You're going to be cared for. You're going to be loved. You're going to be taken care of. When you're invited to uh, give your life to your career, uh, you're not told that the moving every two years uh, and the long hours at work and the heavy travel schedule and the ever-increasing six-figure salary is going to ruin your marriage and family and drive you to an affair. No, you're, you're told that the power, the prestige, and the money is gonna give you the life that you've always wanted. So where's the source of the struggle of life? It's the sin and brokenness you inherit, it's the sin you commit, and it's the sin that is committed against you, these forces of, of evil that are seeking to oppress and steal life from you. Now, we're all sufficiently depressed, right? <laughs> Is there any hope in the midst of that? I mean, look at God's people in Israel. There's a change in power. New Pharaoh comes to town and their lives become awful, ruthlessly oppressed. They don't have, I mean, where's the hope in the midst of struggle? Where's the hope? Well, Exodus 1 sets up like a great drama. Every time evil seems to have won, every time darkness seems to have gotten a foothold, right? hope rises from the ashes. Hope rises from the ashes. Look at, look at verse six. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. The one man, the one man that was protecting God's people, the one man that gave them hope for protection in a future is gone and all his brothers are gone. The story hits a dark spot. Who's there to look out for God's people now that Joseph is gone? Verse seven, but 
the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Then look at verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. God's people were beaten ruthlessly. They were abused, and there was no one in power to protect them. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. The only thing that Israel had going for them was that God was for them. That was it. That God was for them and that he had made promises he was not going to renege on. He told Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, in Genesis 12 too, I will. I will make you into a great nation, a great family, and bless you. He told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's Egypt. But I will, God says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. God promised Abraham and his family down to Jacob, his grandson and his kids, right? God promised land and seed or family. In Exodus 1, we see the seed being fulfilled. This family's growing like wildfire in Egypt. The only thing left is for God to provide land now. And that means that he had to get them out of Egypt. He had to get them out of Egypt. Egypt was not their forever home. And they were powerless and unable to do that. Only God could do that for them. Their only hope was that God was for them. The word but in verses 7 and 12, right? Uh, beginning of verses 7 and 12. Short, little, tiny word loaded with meaning loaded with meaning. What does it mean? If things had played out naturally, meaning if God had not intervened, God's people would have died in Egypt. If God had not intervened, they would have died in Egypt. The only reason they continued to live and to multiply was because God was intervening vening and protecting them. And he used two women, two Hebrew midwives to thwart the evil plans of the most powerful man in the world. And that testimony is not ultimately about those two women, though they acted courageously. That's a testimony to the power of God. Because if things had played out naturally, those women would have been killed by the king of Egypt for disobeying his orders. This is a story a testimony about the power of God, that God is for you. He's for you. The only reason that your addiction hasn't ruined you is because God is for you. The only reason that your sin hasn't crushed you is because God is for you. 
The only reason that you came to church or would go to any church for any reason is because God is for you. The only reason that your addiction to work or to your career hasn't ruined your, your family is because God is for you. Paul says it in Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, how do you know God's for you? How do you know God's for you? Is this just positive thinking? Is this just, drum it up, God's for me? No, remember, this story beginning in Exodus 1 falls in the context of a great battle. This is not the first time that a king has tried to kill the sons of Israel. Pharaoh, the king, does it twice here, tries to do it twice through the Hebrew midwives and ultimately through direct orders to throw the babies in the Nile River. But this is just forecasting a later attack on God's son one day. When Jesus Christ was born, King Herod ordered that all of the children in Bethlehem, the male children under two years of age, were to be killed. And Joseph, Jesus' father, was warned in a dream, and the Lord told Joseph, take baby Jesus and flee. To where? Egypt. Now, why Egypt? Matthew 2.15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt. I called my son. The story of Exodus is the story of Jesus. Jesus is your Exodus from sin. Jesus is your Exodus from the oppression of sin and evil. Jesus is the evidence that God is for you. Right? Talk is cheap. God didn't just, doesn't just say he's for you. He showed he's for you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross, to absorb all of the onslaught of sin and evil on himself, to bury it in the grave, to rise on the third day victorious over sin, over death, and then to rescue you from its grip. Jesus Christ is the one who has rescued you. And the story of Exodus is the story of how he's done that. In the movie Taken, Liam Neeson plays uh, Brian Mills, who's a former CIA operative, who has set out to rescue and find and rescue his daughter who was kidnapped by human traffickers. And there's this riveting scene where he, Liam Neeson, uh, finds a cell phone at the crime scene where his daughter had been kidnapped by these traffickers. And so he picks up, and he calls, and he ends up talking to one of the kidnappers. And listen to what he says to him. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. 
I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills that I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. And that ends that conversation and then begins this relentless pursuit of Neeson to find his daughter. And the storyline sets up that he was a former CIA operative, and the reason he got out of that career is because he wanted to reestablish his relationship with his daughter and regain her trust. And so now he sees all that training he got to be focused on seeking and saving his daughter. The action plays out. He goes through uh, governmental red tape. He goes through crime lords. He goes through language barriers. All of these oppositions and these hurdles in trying to go rescue his daughter. And then finally, he finds her. He finds his daughter on a yacht, having been sold as a prostitute to a wealthy Arab businessman. And when he rescues his daughter, she collapses into his arms and says, Daddy, you came for me. And then Liam Neeson, bloodied and beaten, quietly says to her, I told you I would. I don't know the depth of your struggle. I don't know the damage and the wounds that sin has inflicted on your life. But I do know this. You have a God who loves you. You have a God who has come for you and bled for you in the person of Jesus. Collapse in his arms. Collapse in his arms. Trust him. And find hope in the struggle. Let's pray. Father, you love us. You tell us you love us. You show us you love us. You have shown us by sending your son Jesus to bleed, to die, to absorb the, the evil and the sin in our place to rise from the dead, to set us free, and to give us a new life, free from the grip of it. And yet, Father, until you send Jesus a second time, we know that life in this world will be a struggle, that there is struggle. Struggle doesn't go away. Oh, but Father, we struggle free. We struggle not in bondage, but we struggle as free people 
that over and over can collapse into your arms through faith and repentance. Oh, Father, would you remind us that you're for us, that your son Jesus is our advocate, not our accuser, and that we would over and over collapse into your arms through faith and repentance and find new life and find joy. Father, as we close in worship now, would you send us out with the glorious song ringing in our heads that you're for us? You've shown that in Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen.